How amazing a day today, Lord. We see the springtime coming and we know the change in the seasons and how amazing that is just to see the green and the wildflowers and knowing that summer is coming. Heavenly Father, we are amazed at the way you've put the universe together as a place for us to live. And you shower us with blessings continually because of what you have done and putting all this here just for us. Lord, we thank you and we bless you. Be with us today as we open your word and read the prophet Isaiah and try to understand when Isaiah is calling out the false leaders and the, the poor leaders that they are not shepherding their flock very well and let it be a lesson for all of us. Heavenly Father, open our hearts that we might see and understand the lesson that is here. Be with us and bless our time together. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we are at the end of chapter 56. There's only a few verses here. And then we're going to do the beginning of chapter 57, which turns out to be a pretty long chapter. So we're only going to do like the first two-thirds of chapter 57 today. And uh, <clears throat> I'm debating where I'm going to cut it off next week. We'll, we'll get there. All right. So um, <clears throat> we're going to be <clears throat> looking at Isaiah railing against the irresponsible leaders of Israel. And then Isaiah is calling out Is the, the Israelis' worship of the false god Moloch. And um, it's, it's pretty bad. Isaiah really lets them have it. Um, so we're looking from Isaiah 56.9 all the way through 57.13. So let's start 56.9, and we're looking at um, uh, 9 through, what is it, 13? 9 through 12. Okay, so uh, 9 and 10. This is uh, Israel's irresponsible leaders. All you beasts of the field come to devour all you beasts in the forest. His watchmen are blind. They are without knowledge. They are all silent dogs. They cannot bark. Dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. So you get the picture here. Isaiah is trying to paint a picture in our minds. And here Isaiah is calling out the irresponsible leaders, the incompetent, the false leaders, the, the terminally lazy. They do not defend their people that they have been entrusted with, and they're more interested in their own comfort. Isaiah compares them to lazy, sleeping dogs. The, the big issue here, though, is evil still lurks nearby. And like the beasts of the field, evil will leap upon the unwary at the least expected moment. Isaiah continues on about dogs here, uh, verse 11. The dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough. But they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. You've heard those sorts of words before. Here in verse 11, continuing the allegory of the dogs, the dogs eat and eat and eat. Dogs have a mighty appetite. Um, they, ha they are insatiable. 
and they greedily consumed more and more. They're, the leaders here were expected to be good shepherds caring for their flocks, but no. Each of them has turned their own way, caring for their own comfort and looking after their own individual gain. Verse 12. Come, they say, let me get wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink. Tomorrow will be like this, great beyond measure. This is the, the mindset of these leaders, that their comfort, their partying is more important than anything else they could do. Again, emphasizing the comforts of life. Let us enjoy wine and strong drink. Tomorrow will be just as today, full and easy, the easy life, not working carefully, with purpose, with an eye for future security for the people that have been entrusted to you, your nation, your family, your tribe. Now we jump into chapter 57, verses 1 and 2. Israel's futile idolatry, and here we start talking about Molech. The righteous man perishes and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds who walk in their uprightness. The righteous perish and no one gathers in respect. The devout are enslaved and there is no compassion. And yet at the same time the upright sleep soundly in their beds and rest peacefully. We've all seen this, how the righteous are calm and undisturbed by calamity. Psalm 85, 10 to 13. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. What a perfect image. You've seen this, people who have peace, even in the midst of chaos. Verses 3 and 4. But you draw near, sons of the sorceress, offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman. Whom are you mocking? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of transgression, the offspring of deceit? A scorching rebuke from the prophet Isaiah here. I can imagine the priests and the king's officials not being happy with what Isaiah is saying about them. Isaiah is calling them out with a really serious yo mama insult here. Have you noticed that when things are going dramatically wrong, the cowards begin spinning the blame stories about others? And leaders say like things like, I'm sorry, I should have done better. The evildoers spin lies and deceit against others to deflect the blame away from themselves. Many years ago, <clears throat> we had a leader at NASA and 
he was not in an organization that is normally thought of as being one of the leadership sort of organizations at our place. Um, they're sort of one of the ancillary organizations that kind of gets dragged along. It was a technical organization, but still. Anyway, we had a ground test scheduled, <coughs> and it was just a train wreck. Nothing worked the way it was supposed to. We didn't break anything. It's hard to break something that was already broken. Our software absolutely did not work. So we had a debrief afterwards to try and figure out what went wrong and how we could fix it. And immediately there were people standing up says, wasn't my fault. At the debrief, this particular leader stood up and said, it's my fault. Blame it on me. Okay, so now how do we fix it? This is the difference between leaders and cowards. The parallels with Jesus calling out the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sanhedrin are so clear. Woe unto you, Pharisees. But Isaiah isn't done yet calling out the vile and the evil. And at the same time while he's doing this, he makes this really oblique reference, which if you're not paying attention really closely, it's just going to go right by and you'll miss it. <clears throat> Verses 5 and 6. You who burn with lust among the oaks, under every green tree, who slaughter your children in the valleys, under the clefts of the rocks, among the smooth stones of the valley is your portion. They, they are your lot. To them, when you have poured out a drink offering, you have brought a grain offering. Shall I relent for these things? Did you catch that when it went by? poured out a drink offering and brought a grain offering. He's talking about the bread and the wine once again. I need to explain some things about Molech. Molech was the god that demanded child sacrifice. They would burn their children to death. A gruesome, painful, and torturous way to die. The name Molech is actually, in Hebrew, is almost exactly identical to the word king. And that is actually the, there's places where Isaiah actually makes that flip and goes back and forth. And <clears throat> I'm sure the king's men and the king himself did not find that amusing. So this whole passage is flipping back and forth between Molech and the king. And by inference, with the king is the kingdom itself. The smooth stones of the valley. Ouch. Exodus 20, 25. I got this wrong. Exodus 20, 22 
to 25. Okay, there we go. Exodus 20, 22 to 25. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourself that I have talked to you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. God here does not just say, thou shalt not. God says, if you finish the stones, you profane the altar. That's pretty strong. It's like when God says something is an abomination before him. Those cases should get our attention. Molech, a very evil, human-created God. Verses 7 and 8. On a high and lofty mountain you have set your bed, and there you went up to offer sacrifice, behind the door and the doorpost. You have set up your memorial. For deserting me, you have uncovered your bed. You have gone up to it. You have made it wide. You have made a covenant for yourself with them. You have loved their bed. You have looked on their nakedness. The Samaritans, the ten lost tribes of the Hebrews, believed that everyone could worship God from any high mountain. The problem with what the Samaritans did was they mixed in all the religions of the local clans that they had come in contact with. And so these high mountain places were places to worship those gods as well, not just the God of the universe. And it was all mixed in together. And that was the problem with the Samaritans. They amalgamated their worship of God with other local gods, including Molech. And God despises such practices. The Jews, Judah and Benjamin, believed that God could only be worshipped on the top of Mount Moriah. Today we refer to this place as the Temple Mount. It's the place where Solomon built his temple and Nehemiah rebuilt the temple that lasted all the way through the time of Jesus and the Romans crushed And now the Muslims have raised a mosque on top of that. It's an interesting problem. The Israelites, when they took over the Temple Mount, they were the first nation to conquer the Temple Mount that did not level the house of worship on the top. And they left the mosque that was there It's an interesting problem that everyone has. Continuing on, verses 9 and 10. You journeyed to the king with oil and multiplied your perfumes. You sent your envoys far off and sent down even to Sheol. You were wearied with the length of your stay, but you you did not say it is hopeless. You found new life for your strength. And so 
you were not faint. There's quite a bit there to unpack. The reference to sending envoys there was when the Israel nation tried to align itself with Egypt in order to have some large power as an ally against the Assyrians that were coming. Instead of praying to God, they went and made a deal with the Pharaoh of Egypt, who ultimately did nothing for them. When the Babylonians came and marched them off into captivity, Isaiah 30, 1 through 3. Isaiah 30, 1 through 3. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots, because they are many, and in horsemen, because they are strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. And yet he is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words but will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God. Their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and they will all perish together. Isaiah 39, 5-8. Isaiah 39, 5-8. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, will be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. If I heard those words about my family, it, it would really hurt me. What do I have to do to fix this? For my sons, my family, my grandchildren. Listen to what Hezekiah says then. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord you have spoken is good, for he's thinking in his mind, there will be peace and security in my days. Hezekiah actually was a good leader, but he was not a great leader, because he was more interested in his own comfort than that of his children. There was an article this week came out of Kabul, the Taliban. This particular journalist was in Kabul and he was interviewing an Afghan father. And things are very hard there right now. There are no jobs. Um, cost of material things are very, very high. Food, the costs are very high. 
So this man is commiserating. And the way that he is going to make money, and this actually happened, is that he was going to sell his son's kidney. And so it's $1,800 for the surgery, and you get about $4,500 for a kidney. And so he didn't tell the boy what he was doing, 15-year-old boy, took him to the hospital, checked him in, and then that's when the kid found out what was going to happen. And they took the kid's kidney. Here in the United States, we have a very different sort of attitude. And you can actually hear the Christian message in it. And you know that the nation, when it was founded, was founded on those principles. But when the parents in our country send their sons off to war, the thing that mo many of them say is that they cannot imagine a greater sacrifice than sending their own son. I heard George H.W. Bush actually say that in a speech once. And that's the difference between the attitude of our country and Christian ethics and the attitude of places like this Afghan man. Let's continue on. Verses 11 and 12. Whom did you dread and fear so that you lied and did not remember me, did not lay it to heart? Have I not held my peace even for a long time, and do you not fear me? I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. God is laying on some sarcasm here. The last statement is accurate. Your righteousness and deeds will not profit. And again, you think of these leaders that are running around in circles. They want to go to Egypt and they want to go to Babylon and cut these deals and protect themselves. In verse 13, When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry them all off. A breath will take them away. But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. And here, in our last verse, Isaiah gives the denouement. This is the theme song from 2001, also Sprach Zarathustra. When God proclaims, he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. That is an incredibly bold statement. Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That's Jesus in the Beatitudes, Sermon on the Mount. Psalm 37, 9 through 11. Psalm 37, 9 through 11. For the evildoers shall be cut off, 
but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. <coughs> More tea. Isaiah 35.10 Isaiah 35.10 And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads and they shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Micah 4, 1 and 2. Micah 4, 1 and 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his path. For out of Zion shall come forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And almost the exact same from Isaiah. There's actually a flip in one word, one spot. Isaiah 2.2 It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, it shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. It's almost exactly the same, but there's one little tiny flip. God is trying to give us some boundaries. And this isn't an example of, hey, here's the guardrail, let's run up to the edge and look, right? That's not what you're supposed to do. The, bound, the, the guardrails are there to say, once you've gone beyond the boundary, you've gone too far. This is not what, the way we're supposed to live. God is trying to give us the boundaries for the way we are supposed to live. And you can see between those boundaries what that looks like. You can imagine it in your mind. This is not an a esoteric exercise. God is being very clear about what is expected. <clears throat> we should respect that. God sets those boundaries because of the purpose for which we are designed. And he's doing it because he loves us. And even in our darkest hour of trial, we all know God will still be there for us in the end. God is the only one that is wholly just. He is the only one that is wholly faithful. God knows what the great problem is between his people and eternity with him. And it is a problem of sin. And God knows that the only way that sin, that sin can be atoned for, for the redemption of God's people, for the salvation of God's people. No one can pay for their own sins. No 
solely human person can pay for their sin. Each sin requires death. Yet the Father knows the one who can pay for all sins, from eternity past through the present to eternity in the future. The Father knows, and the Father knows which servant is just and true and can stand in the gap to cover all the sins of God's people. And Jesus is the one. And isn't it interesting that God says, my son is the only one that can do this. Jesus is the one, the servant, the crown prince, the king, not created, not made, and forever eternal. Let's pray. Almighty God, we look at the words of Isaiah and we try to imagine what the times must have been like. The coming of the Assyrians, the leadership running off to try and cut a deal with Babylon or with Egypt and how all of it falls apart and eventually, finally, the Israelite people are led out in exile, captives to Babylon. How crushing that must have been to know that There was nothing that anyone could do. That it was meant to be that way because of the hardness of the people's hearts. And all those trials, all that suffering, all that death. Lord, we know that those are the times that people turn to you. And in those moments, we know that Jesus is there. Lord, you set it up so that we have those trials, so that we will come on our knees to you. You specifically give us tasks that we cannot stand. We cannot stand under them and they crush us. And in those moments we finally come to the point where we trust it all to you. Which is the very first thing that we should have done instead of trying to solve it ourselves. Heavenly Father, we look in this passage and sure enough, Jesus is in there. <clears throat> He's the one that we should look to. He is the great example, the great teacher, the great leader. Lord, we are so grateful for Jesus. It's why we sing. It's why we praise. Heavenly Father, how amazing is Jesus. And we love you for that.
Amen.